Oh man, did we talk about the? Um, are we recording already? Have you? Been I, I just started it. Okay, yeah. Have we talked about the episode with the chicken pox? Well, and and where they like are afraid they literally turn into chickens. Yeah. No, I don't think we did. We I don't think we did talk about that, and we should probably we should probably lead in per per normal. So oh yeah, yeah, sure. Standard yeah, yeah. standard greeting introduction initiate. Yeah. Uh, I'm Paige. I'm Chris. Uh, and this is Animates. Today we're uh, going to be wrapping up with the Rugrats because mm-hmm. I have some addendums. Yeah, yeah, there are like a few things that we didn't, uh, we were just running a little long, so this is probably, this one's going to be a little bit shorter, I think, um, than the last one uh, as we wrap up this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, I'm playing the intro here, um, <laughs> just because every time I hear it, I feel nostalgic. It is. It's like it's a very good, um, it's a very good theme song. And actually, one of our friends from college um, responded to us on Facebook about um, the the mother's bows. And it turns out they are, in fact, brothers, and they were in Devo. So I had no idea that the Devo guys did the um, Rugrats music, which kind of makes a lot of sense when you when you think about it, right? Uh, something that's, like, so different sounding and so iconic, uh, it kind of makes sense that the Devo guys would make that. Um, but, yeah, it's a really, like... It's a really good theme song, and it really fits the mood of the show. I am not very familiar with Devo, to be honest, but that's okay. That's okay. They did whip it, and that's all you really need to know. Right. That's 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 just about all I know about them. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, yeah. So that yeah, that was definitely one of the things that came up in between now and when we aired our last show. Another one was a suggestion that we list the episodes that we've been watching so that people know kind of where we're referencing. And the reason I didn't kind of do that last time is because I had literally watched like half of the show. So it was yeah, like, same. What? We're, we're referencing entire seasons. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like our intention with this show is always to watch as much of the cartoon that we're discussing as we can in the given time period before we record an episode there Um, is definitely this time is the same because this time i have watched now all the way through season six so i'm definitely referencing about one or no wait five sevenths of the (laughs) show Nice fractions. Reduced wonderfully. <laughs> another, uh, another suggestion was that we say like and um less. Yeah, that's true. Uh, folks, we're millennials. Uh, we've been trained to use like as a filler uh, in our sentences. So we'll try and be more cognizant of that as time goes on. And say that a little bit less, because I know it can be jarring to listen to. 
I know that as well. And when other people do it, like when I'm teaching in class, for example, and people are giving presentations and they do it, it's very noticeable to me too. And as a, like a person who's been trained to do public speaking in a academic setting, it's definitely something they teach you to stop doing. And I've gotten really good when I'm talking about research or presenting in class, but when it's a informal discussion like we are having, I get in millennial talk mode and it, and so just know that we are cognizant of it and we will do our best and please, it should get better. So know that we know, know that just we bear know. with us. <laughs> oh man. Okay. So as we were leading in, actually, we were talking about, uh, because I had the flu we were talking about immune responses and illnesses and things like that. And it just made me think of the episode where the babies have the chicken pox. And I thought it might be a good little jumping off point into discussing the show itself. Because you get this really interesting thing where uh, Dee Dee is wondering if they should expose the kids to chicken pox. And she's trying to get a hold of Lipschitz to discuss it. Um which in the period of like the 50s through 80s was really common actually to have like a chickenpox party and expose all of the kids to it because it's one of those illnesses that once you get it, you don't ever get it again and it's easier on your body when you're young than it is when you're older. Uh, and I wonder how this kind of thing would change if the show were being made today with the prevalence of the uh, anti-vaxxer movement and things like that, if there would be, if it would be a different kind of episode, you know? The, there's a chicken pox vaccine. So when you're yes, thinking yes. about a vaccine in this way, I actually think those people would be very much in favor of a chicken pox party and would be against using the chicken pox vaccine. So really, I think you'd see the same thing, except if, Somebody was like, I exposed my kid via the vaccine. They'd all be like, you're not welcome here. Yeah. I wonder, like, would the parents be anti-vaxxers? That's the question. <laughs> I like to believe that despite the, uh, not caricature, but despite what they appear to be maybe as a joke context, I think they're smart enough that mm -hmm. they perhaps dote a little bit too highly on Lipschitz's advice, but they, I think, would be able to think through that. Like, th and they don't appear to have any religious or very strong political affiliations. And I would like yeah. to believe that they would be able to understand that like research doesn't support that and that that's just silly it's just silly deadly and silly yeah i think so too um and also something that's like important to note for this just because we i brought it up um the babies on the show are too young to have received the chicken pox vaccine uh it's one of the later vaccines that you receive um, with all your vaccinations as a kid. So the reason that none of them like have any kind of immunity whatsoever is because they're too young to have been maybe, I don't know about Angelica, Angelica, but then again, I had the vaccine and I still got the chicken pox. So I, you know. I was an old fashioned 
exposed to it, had it when I was three kind of kid. Yeah, I had the vaccine, but I still got it in kindergarten. And it was a lot more mild, you know, it went away after a few days. I also thought it was interesting that they had they were dealing with the fact that if you don't have it as a child and you catch it as an adult, it can be dangerous because Stu never had it. Um, glad Stu did not get the chicken pox well, <laughs> in this episode. And it should be noted that sometimes chicken pox does appear in adulthood, and when it's in adulthood, it's called shingles, and it's much more painful. Um, you get, like, fewer splotches, but they are much more intensely itchy and painful. So Yeah, yeah. it's also, like, slightly different um, because in order to have shingles, you must have had chickenpox. Like, it's a mutation of the chickenpox virus that happens inside your body. Um, and it can be, like nerve pain <laughs> like it can be really serious right right that it, it is sometimes people who have had it will will get shingles but for the most yeah. part you're that's like a low chance fun fact the mm. shingles virus lives in your spine it lives in the ganglia Whoa. that so nerves run from your skin through your body to your spine mm -hmm. and shingles lives in your ganglia and your spine and that's where it reproduces and what happens when you get an outbreak of the shingles is that the virus travels down all the way from your spine down the nerves that connect to your skin and it creates like those pustules and all that sorts of fun stuff so the virus is really in your spine wild i had no idea about that fun fact about shingles folks which i'm glad that the kids definitely take this i mean that's a common theme throughout the show is that the kids take language and they 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 overgeneralize it uh in a way that is kind of consistent with the way that you require grammatical rules in language acquisition Right. There's a stage of language acquisition that's called um, that's marked by overgeneralization of grammatical rules. So that's why you'll hear toddlers say things like me want this. Right. They're overgeneralizing that grammatical rule. And the kids in the show kind of do this with either having misheard a word or multiple meanings of word or literal versus metaphorical meaning of a word in a way that is the source of a lot of the adventure and comedy in the show. And they, they treat a lot of things too literally too, mm -hmm. which is a good example of like concrete analysis of something that is abstract. For example, yeah. chicken pox. The name chicken mm -hmm. is not literal. That is just the name of the disease. But the kids take it and they believe that it has to do with becoming a chicken. Mm -hmm. And that is, of course, played up for our benefit. It is funny. It is scary. Mm -hmm. All of the babies end up acting like chickens and the parents find it hilarious. There are <laughs> other times where that is done to, I think, whether the writers intended it or not, it kind of makes fun of things that adults take seriously. There's an episode where the kids basically set up a courtroom because 
a lamp gets broken. Tommy's favorite lamp. Mm -hmm. And nobody knows who did it. And so Angelica decides that this is a perfect time to set up a courtroom, have Tommy as the judge, she's the prosecutor, and all the babies, the rest of them, have to provide their testimony. And they mispronounce the name of the judge. It's the jerky, not the jury. And Mm -hmm. they go through these motions, and the babies don't know why. Like, there's got to be... Angelica's like, there has to be a judge. There has to be a jerky. And the babies are like, why? And she says, that's just the way it is. And so Mm -hmm. it's this, like, very serious distillation of, like, this is how courtrooms work. And as a kid, the arbitrary, that's just why, is enough. But it kind of is, I I don't know, I think when I look at it, it kind of makes fun of like, this is just the way it is, and this is the process. And when you think about it, there's reasons why we do that. But really, on its face, maybe it's just, just because that's the way it is. Yeah, maybe it's just arbitrary. I also love that uh, Angelica uses this complete kangaroo court disingenuously from the jump. Like, Angelica did it. She did it all along. I'm sure no one's surprised because uh, she is terrible. Um, but she gets to play the role of prosecutor and cast all these suspicions on everyone else when really the whole time she's the one who broke the lamp. Um, which, I don't know. Is there uh, something deeper there about the criminal justice system? I don't know. Are you trying to say that it's really the system itself that commits most of the atrocities and it's simply distracting people by focusing on individual crimes? I don't know, Chris. Is that what I'm trying to say? Is that what you're saying? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, that's actually what I'm saying. (laughs) Well, are are you... Okay, I'm just like on the on the one hand, there's there's probably something to that. On the other hand, I don't know if you could ever convince anybody that we also shouldn't have a system of adjudicating like individual problems between people because you have to have yeah. that in a society that doesn't want to rip its throat out. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, the idea of uh, like truly you know, leftist criminal justice reform and prison abolition and stuff like that is, like, a really complex question. Uh, I just enjoy reading complex morals into Rugrats. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm waiting for the person who comes along who's like, you guys are just really thinking too hard and just, like, let it be about the babies. Let it be <laughs> about the babies. Well, somebody will always say something like that whenever you're doing any kind of analysis of a show. But, you know, I mean, it's more fun to do analysis of a show like or literature or anything, you know. I like like to think about stuff. I think we're pretty clear that we are deriving meaning out of it and not insinuating that that is what it is. Like that's what the writers intended or that this is really how you should view it. It's simply a springboard to make me think. And also yeah, exactly. laugh at the hilarious sex insinuation. <laughs> oh, speaking yeah, of which... Yeah, I'm not... I don't think we'll ever really make any statements about authorial intent unless we specifically say, I wonder what the authorial intent was at this <laughs> moment. Right. Uh, something about... Okay, so last week, or I guess a couple weeks ago now, we talked about like the Playboy 
and mm-hmm. the Bapo joke. Well, mm-hmm. there's a couple more, and one of the ones that I clearly remember is that the babies get into Angelica's parents' closet, and they start digging through the closet, and Angelica and Chucky are the only two that are hanging out, and they find a pair of handcuffs in Angelica's parents' closet, and, <laughs> and then they, of course, get stuck in the handcuffs and believe that they will be stuck together forever. Oh man. It, that's not the same episode where they were like wrapping up Christmas presents, right? Or is it? No, that is not the, that is not the same episode. Okay. It's hard for me to distinguish episodes that happen at Angelica's house because most of the episodes that happen at Angelica's house are about Angelica forcing the babies to try and get something that her parents have hidden from her. Yes. Yes, absolutely. This time it's just Chucky for reasons I can't remember. I think Charles had like Dee Dee and Stu weren't available. So he, for some reason (laughs) went to Charlotte and drew. Yeah. Would not go to Charlotte and drew. (laughs) Um, Something I noticed as, because I continued to watch periodically, like I said, till the end of season six. Something I did notice is the show did get less weird. They really they keep the the spirit, I think, is still there. And they still do like a lot of the visceral shots and despite the smoothing out of the art style, it does continue to stay pretty consistent but there are episodes that don't like past season four the episodes stop reminding me of being scared or creeped out um just the way that they're done is that they feel less weird that's the only way that i can put it yeah and in the earlier seasons there are there are episodes even that as an adult watching by myself, I just the reminder of it being frightening as a child is enough to put me a little on edge, you know, uh, like the one where they think that Stu is a robot and they're trying to open his chest with a plastic screwdriver. Like as a child, I found that incredibly visceral and unsettling in, in a way that not a lot of shows for children do stuff like that, you know? One hypothesis I have is that the show, it's an issue of scale. So the show is well known for doing things from like a baby's perspective. So Mm -hmm. things are drawn bigger and shadows are deeper. Everything is more, you know, there's more of it. They They stop doing that as much. Um, Interesting. The house, everything is drawn almost to the perspective of how an adult would be looking at stuff. Hmm. And I think that's why it gets less weird and scary, because when they go into a basement, it's no longer this huge, giant room, and it's this perspective where behind everything is creepy, creepy stuff or large boxes that look like a monster, it's in normal size basement to an adult. And the kids yeah. get down there in in there. And I think that removes some of the unsettlingness 
Yeah, because like when you're a child, things are very frightening. You don't know what anything is, you know, like everything can be threatening. And I think that they were conveying that in earlier seasons and maybe just the popularity of the show. The fact so Nickelodeon does this today and has long been well known for being a network that thinks that you can only have one show. They'll have a really, really popular show and consequently cancel shows that are good but slightly less popular in order to throw more and more money at their cash cow. And I wonder if Rugrats becoming a cash cow for Nickelodeon and a flagship program for them sort of led to a little bit of pressure to make it a little bit less weird, a little bit less unsettling, you know? When we look at, eventually when we get to Ren and Stimpy and Rocco's Modern Life, because those were on during the Rugrats original air, I don't know how many seasons they had. I don't know how long they went, et cetera, et cetera. But if we find that the shows stopped around, like, before Rugrats hit its fourth season and they stopped Mm -hmm. really airing as much then that would be consistent with what you've just said. Yeah, yeah, it would make sense. And we can look into that, too, when we get around to those shows, into how long they ran and if they were rerun very often. But, I mean, that's definitely a thing that um, that Nickelodeon is has certainly come under fire for in the last couple of years. I can't remember the show that they canceled or what their additional flagship to SpongeBob is right now, but I knew they came under fire for canceling a couple of pretty popular shows in order to throw all the money at SpongeBob and their other newer flagship show. Or you can think about even when we were a little older, what was on Nickelodeon? What was the cartoon on Nickelodeon? It was The Fairly Odd Parents, which is a great show, but it was mostly The Fairly Odd Parents and. Um, in SpongeBob and not a whole lot of other stuff. They weren't doing reruns of other shows nearly as much. Other shows didn't get nearly as long of a run or except for maybe Jimmy Neutron. That was, that was a pretty big one at the time too, but you, you understand what I'm saying. Yes, I do understand what you're saying. And uh, what I do notice as the show moves past its fourth season is that they start doing a lot more imagination stuff which yes. is cool. So they, they, they start getting away from the visceral children's perspective and sort of a literal watching them go on an adventure in the backyard and they do more here's what the kids are imagining. Like all of a sudden Chucky's an explorer. Everybody's an explorer and they're climbing these huge boxes to save child reptar and it turns into this giant volcano and they're climbing all these dangerous places. And I think maybe that's kind of what they replace that with is that they start Mm -hmm. really showing literal interpretations of the kids' imaginations. And so it instills this kind of softer edge type of wonder to the show in place of what they had done originally. And I can't help but wonder if that was maybe because of the departure of Gaiman and maybe uh, Klasky or Supo were... Oh, you mean Paul Germain when he left? Yeah, Germain. Whether they, like, 
those two were more into imagination or one of them was, but like there were creative differences that got pushed in the earlier seasons that they're like, all of a sudden they had to fill room in the later seasons and they had an opportunity to get into that more. Or if that was just a natural evolution of the show as it was being written. And now I, from the age that I am, that's really what I remember Rugrats for was for these sort of grand adventures of, imagination where you'd be seeing the kids all those explorers dressed up and they're climbing a um they're climbing a mountain but then somebody trips and all of a sudden we're back in the real world and they're all tumbling down in a pile of boxes you know things like that um like i think one of the first like really strong episodes showing that is the one where pop accidentally turns off the water fountain in the park and they meet that kid um and they cross the basketball courts, you know, to go um, find water. Right, and, and everything is a desert. It's like a huge yeah. desert that they have to cross. And it's like the Sahara, and they're wearing, like, desert uniforms and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, like, they put on a diaper that looks like that kind of hat that covers your neck and stuff. That episode also a little bit racist, honestly. Not gonna lie, slightly racist. There, yeah, there are definitely moments that sneak in. Mm-hmm. S- Susie and her family continue to be upstanding role models, though. Yeah, no, they're great. They're fantastic. Love them. Though, what I've realized upon watching is that they are much less common than I remember. Yeah, I noticed that too. I remember being Susie being. Not as much of a staple as, like, Angelica, but still on the show a lot, but not really. Yeah, not really. And I wonder, I have to wonder, maybe, it was because I, like, it has a bigger spot in my memory because I wasn't as used to seeing, like, little, like, especially, like, little black girls on TV. And so it was yeah. really novel and it flashbulbed memoried itself into me. It very well may have. And I also wonder the extent to which, you know, a year or so after the Rugrats finishes its run, maybe not even that long. Cause it's hard to remember how time happens when you're a child, but the proud family premieres on, on Disney, which is a show entirely about a black family where almost all of the characters are black or Latino. Um, very few white characters on the show at all. And you got to wonder to what extent were they able to make a program like that because of the trail blazed, you know, on, um, on Rugrats, for example, you hear, uh, Rebecca sugar in the Steven universe team talk about the fact that, they've only been able to be as open about the queer themes on their show because of what the legend of Korra did. Yeah. And which by the way, Paige and I are big old, (laughs) I I still don't feel comfortable saying that in public, like big old queers, big old queers. Yeah. But no, um, I am a gay male. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm bisexual. We're queer people, so we probably will talk about queer stuff pretty Rugrats, frequently. Rugrats, it hasn't really come up because Rugrats doesn't 
really it's not a very queer show which is fine but no Mm -hmm. there aren't like there aren't any gay or lesbian parents that i remember it's about babies so naturally like their sexuality is not a topic of discussion nor really should it be should it be yeah yeah. i'm glad that's not that would be really weird what kind of dystopia would we be in if we were trying to classify our babies as gay or straight or any other number of things yeah i mean like there are a few episodes where it's about angelica having a crush or that episode where chucky meets that little girl in the park but i also think those are like age appropriate interactions that young children will have with other young children that were portrayed in in a way that is authentic to what it's like as a child right Right. and you you have to because of how much the children mimic like that's also a huge part of the show is mimicry Mm -hmm. and how heavily the experience of these children is based in mimicry of adult things often again to comedic effect because they mimic terribly Mm -hmm. but they it may just be them mimicking adult courtship rituals or adolescent courtship rituals, which kids do all the time. They're oh, like, absolutely, yeah. I had a girlfriend as a first grader, and I had no freaking idea what that meant. I only did it because that's how adults interacted on TV or my older siblings were, like, interacting with people. And yeah. it's sort of this puppy love kind of thing, not anything more serious. Yeah, for sure. Like I had a little boyfriend in preschool and when our moms would come pick us up, the teacher would tell them and they would think it was adorable. Different stuff that we'd done that's clearly mimicry of what we saw in popular culture with our parents. Like we would sit next to one another during music time and he would put his arm over the back of my chair. You know, that's mimicry of adult behaviors and figuring out how you're supposed to interact with other people. Yeah, mimicry is very important in child development. Just the, the, little, the little psych part there. Um, <laughs> okay, can we actually talk a little bit about the political dynamics of the baby group? Because I think it's really interesting, actually. You um, are the one to really hit on that, so I won't steal your thunder. I think yeah. it should be noted that that is that is what I would call an emergent property of the show. It was not intended because it is not a political... Okay, the people who are like, everything is political are going to get on me here. But the show is not intended to be political. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, There's like a difference between intending a political commentary and the fact that politics makes its way into everything. So I think that that kind of came out of the show unintentionally just as a product of everything that they were doing so i'll probably just chip in comments if psychology comes up or just stuff yeah for sure so i think that most people would remember tommy as the leader of the group or um like it's clear that it was supposed to be that way. You're supposed to get the impression that Tommy's the leader of the group. And Tommy definitely has like what we'd call charismatic authority. He's very good at making, like he'll make these really rousing speeches or he's really good at uh, inspiring people. But actually, if you look at the way that the babies 
make decisions when they're left to their own devices is it's extremely egalitarian to the point where it almost seems like um, anarchic in nature. They make all of their decisions by consensus. So now normally Tommy will supply an idea, which like there's a role of leadership there. But Tommy will supply an idea and he'll say, what do you guys think? And Phil and Lil will normally be on board kind of right away. And Chucky, who is an anxious and measured child, uh, which I can relate to, will say, I don't know. I don't think that's such a good idea. And they'll talk out his concerns about the situation. And eventually he'll still have reservations, but he will come to agree to do it. They're never forcing him to do it. They're hearing his concerns. They're firing back at his concerns with, you know, well, uh, maybe that won't happen because of this. And he eventually will agree to participate. All of their, (coughs) pardon me, had the flu. Uh, All of their decisions happen as a group. They're never forcing anybody else to do anything. Except for when Angelica is playing with them. Because in opposition to the babies who are extremely democratic and egalitarian in their decision-making, Angelica is incredibly authoritarian. Angelica's a little dictator. And you see that she also never feels that she needs to make any justification for anything. She will, if she's hanging out behind the scenes trying to make something happen internally with the babies, um, she will manipulate them into doing things or believing things. But when she is running the show, she just tells them you're going to do this because I say so. And this is the way that it's going to be. And I will enact violence upon you. Well, there it, it's always appeal to some pre-existing thing outside of them. So it's usually mm-hmm. appeal to age appeal to authority given to her by her parents, mm-hmm. authority, like as sort of an adult, which she's totally not, but compared to the babies, she believes that she's a grown up. Yeah. So there's always some, like you could basically take that out and insert like rule by divine mandate. And it would be the same thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting because I, um, you know, if I want to really push it, Right. Um, she, Angelica, as like a hegemonic power, right, will engage in like covert operations to extract what she wants from the babies by manipulating them or like when she makes them think that Spike can talk uh, and gets them to do like steal cookies and all kinds of stuff by making them think that Spike can talk. You know, she'll engage in these covert operations through manipulation if. Uh, either to get what she wants or simply for her own amusement at times, or she will engage in um, like coercive, uh, coercive behavior. She will appeal to authority or use the threat of imminent violence to force the babies to do what she wants to do, which is the same way that hegemonic powers in real life politics uh, exercise their power over um other states and individuals but the show kind of implicitly teaches the lesson that collective collective action operating Mm -hmm. in an egalitarian manner is often enough to bulwark such attempts and perhaps 
always leads to the other falling. It's like, it's not only that, but it's also the idea that collective, like they, the collective takes care of each other, but the individualists who seeks only to benefit from themselves eventually gets fucked. <laughs> yeah. Like also you could do an economic analysis of this and say that Angelica is the capitalist and the babies are the workers, you know, and the workers have power and solidarity. Whereas, uh, Angelica like fucks herself because she exploits them too much. Right. Um, now also a lot of this in, you know, in the show actually, because they're children functions in that, uh, there is a higher power than Angelica. Um, and she gets her comeuppance from that higher power, namely the adults. Typically, Dee Dee. Dee Dee is the one who usually punishes Angelica. I was just about to say, if you really want to like make this a real world sort of analogy, this the parents are a pre-existing large power or government. Mm-hmm. Angelica is a middleman, a bureaucrat, a person who exists in between yeah. the adults and. Indi- like an individual community and it shows that like a lazy fair government will breed abusive middlemen yes yeah that also that's interesting that's even more nuanced yeah, yeah. but I don't but know it, I, it also shows like even in the case of a lazy fair government maybe the community if it is actually a community it all, okay, for me, all of this psychologically leads back to the importance of community because even in a laissez-faire situation where bureaucrats are not being managed correctly or not punished correctly for their abuses, that mm-hmm. the community is able to sustain itself until the government can get involved. Yeah, and then you also see Angelica's really the only person in the whole show who lacks community because I think we hit on it last time. Right right now we're talking about the babies in their community and the way that they do things. And last time we talked, I think, about the community of the parents in this show and how actually it's really interesting and, and bizarre in this sort of like atomized suburban American society Um that they have immediate family nearby. They have friends who function as a part of their family and they are frequently with one another. They share responsibilities for childcare. They're allowed to discipline one another's children. They spend holidays and things like that together. Uh, It's a type of community that doesn't really exist that frequently in the United States anymore, but as is shown as very normal and very positive in this show. So you have this adult community um, where child rearing is almost a communal activity, and you have this community of babies where it's extremely egalitarian and uh, decisions are made by consensus, and then you have Angelica who is an individualist and lacks community primarily just because there aren't a lot of other kids her age around and things don't usually go as well for her as they go for the adults or for the babies. And she's, I, she's kind of put up as a tragic figure because she's so Mm -hmm. she's shown to like, she wants affection. She wants Mm -hmm. friends. She wants to be a person and 
people need other people. That's that's just the way our brains work, kids. And <laughs> she is so often shown that like her behavior is antithetical to that need so often. And she has moments of she has moments of clarity where she realizes that, where she sees her error and she shows remorse. But yeah. Yeah. she cannot stop engaging in this sort of me, me, me behavior. Mm-hmm. And it, I guess it's kind of a lesson in that you need people, but if you do this, you are going to hurt the people you need. So don't do that. Yeah. Don't, and don't, then I think the times where we see Angelica actually experience happiness, true happiness that doesn't just come from material gain or hedonic um, satisfaction are when she manages to stop behaving that way and find a sense of community, like in Cool Hand Angelica, where she is forced by the camp counselors to behave herself and participate in group activities. She calms way down Um, has a lot of fun with the other kids and doesn't want to leave camp, you know, an hour early because she's experiencing the kind of um, satisfaction that can only come to human beings through genuine interaction with other human beings. And that episode has a great moment where you realize that it truly is most of Angelica's problem that her parents sabotage her. Her parents come to remove her from that camp too early, <laughs> and they are the ones to stunt her growth. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we've talked. We talked. <gasps> Which is an allegory for the government getting involved in something. I don't know. No, I was like, I had a half thought. I had a half no. thought. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I think we discussed last time um, the parenting styles of the different parents, and we I think we really hit that um, Charlotte and Drew are definitely the worst parents on the show, but um, that they still, like, clearly love their daughter, you know? Like, none of the parents on the show are bad people. Well, and they have they have a dismissive parenting style. That is, like, in the research on parenting styles, that's what it's called. And dismissive parenting styles, have, like, produce, have, have a chance to, or, okay, how am I going to put this? Having a dismissive parenting style predicts certain problematic outcomes in children. It's mm-hmm. not always a sure thing, but there's a relationship between those two things. And the rest of the parents are what you would probably call authoritative. And which is typically when you read at least, um, you know, high school level or college level psychology textbooks is explicitly identified as a preferable parenting style. The best, apparently. Mm-hmm. No, like that. You're right. That is generally in the parenting styles research. You want to be authoritative which is all about firm hands, but loving, loving demeanors and treating kids fairly and with respect, but also understanding that you can't be their friend. 
And yeah, sometimes yeah. kids you need structure, teach. but also the ability to make decisions, you know, the way that seems obvious to create a well-adjusted human being. <laughs> yeah, and you can't, like, you have to be tough and not give in to guilt, but you also have to let kids make a mistake and be understanding when they do. And there are, there are a variety of, it's kind of sort of a, you need to be loving, tough, and fair. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Angelica's parents are dismissive because they kind of just, they they don't really set tough rules. They kind of give in to her needs whenever she wants them. They're easily guilt, easily guilted. And mm-hmm. at the same time, they don't really provide any structure for her. And they kind of let her just go about her own business. And that's not, that's no bueno. No, like kids need structure very badly. Like kids need a routine. Um, And that was actually a thing that when I was teaching, I believed in really strongly and tried to break into my classroom because children, um, you know, we talk a lot about what can make children feel safe. And a lot of times adults um, don't think about it in the right way because they're not thinking about what it was like to be a child. But Children feel safe when they have routines. When children know what is going to happen and when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen every day, they feel safe. And they can, um, like, grow and explore in that environment, right? And it's very clear on Rugrats that the babies have that kind of environment. They very clearly feel safe. They very clearly know, like, this is when my nap is going to happen. This is when my bottle is going to happen. And this is when I'm going to get a bath. And so I can feel confident that I can escape from my playpen and go do all this uh, imagination and adventuring and that my mom will come get me, will come find me, you know, when it's time for me to have my bottle. Right? right. Structure is definitely positive. There is, of course, as they say, too much of a good thing. Oh, yeah, and for sure. Micromanaging is generally not a good way to structure your child's life. Mm-hmm. Unstructured playtime is important. is important. Structure has more to do with predictability over the course of a day or mm-hmm. week, like rather than within minutes or hours. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like when I was a child, you know, most of my, especially because my mom was like a stay at home mom. Most of my day involved unstructured play, but I knew that, like, at noon, mom will sit me down on the living room floor with Little Bear, and she will ask me whether I want, like, a peanut butter and jelly or a grilled cheese for lunch, you know, and we'll have lunch. And I know that at 5 o'clock, like, my mom will tell me to wash my hands because we're going to have dinner, you know, but most of the day is just, like, me playing, you know? Yeah, that's why things like Montessori schools exist the way they do, is because they're both structured and unstructured at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it can seem like a paradox, but it's really not. It's macro, yeah. it's like macro structure, micro less structure. Yeah, exactly. And actually, that's kind of what all of Rugrats is about. Because it's very clear that they have macro structure in their lives from the things that the parents say and their, the things that we see happening. But most of the show is about babies engaging in unstructured play, right? That's why all this imagination is allowed to happen, because the babies are just playing. 
and doing whatever they feel like. And they're not being made to play in any specific way. And I'm probably preaching to the choir on this one, but play is very important in development. Mm-hmm. Like there's uh, oh, you could send me off on like a forty five minute rant right now. Right now. <laughs> there's there's a lot of research on the importance of play in mm-hmm. development for tactile skills, for emotional skills, basically for most skills. Yeah, for being a person, play is play. important. That's that's why a lot of people get so hung up on the fact that parents aren't letting their kids engage in unstructured plays because it's potentially problematic yeah for sure for sure but i think and so we i think this is i don't know if we talked about this on the show last week i can't remember but uh can this show exist if we said it in 2018 and we came to the conclusion that no it cannot um for a variety of reasons and i wonder if you could ever see this kind of show again that is so focused on um, children being unsupervised and unstructured and engaging in imagination and um, problem solving on their own, right? Uh, learning how to interact in groups without adult interference. I, I think it can precisely because I think that this very protective micromanaging style of parenting is I've pretty much seen everybody my age rail against that. And I think that people like us who I've heard that I I grew up with a lot of unstructured play. And I think a lot of people my age do. And a lot of people my age also say that it seems like we're the last generation of people to really have done that with any regularity Yes. Those people are becoming parents. And Do so you think I, that this like rigid, sort of fearful parenting style might be on its way out? I think that if not on its way out, that there is a significant group of people who would find solace precisely because they grew up with the Rugrats. They grew up with unstructured play and they want to expose their children to the same stuff. And I think a lot of parents are like going to be able to find things, research, articles, shows that talk about unstructured play and would show that it's very important to let your kids mm-hmm. have a modicum of autonomy. I'd like to believe that this show could exist soon. Like in the next five years coming back again. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think uh, the conclusion we're coming to here is like, despite Angelica's parents not having a very good parenting style and her struggling because of that, uh, when you look at the babies, um, like Rugrats portrays a healthy childhood. <laughs> like Rugrats portrays like kids getting to engage in unstructured play, like explore learn, um, problem solve on their own, uh, against the backdrop of like very loving parents, um, who are doing like their best to provide like, uh, like structure and, um, you know, uh, support and affection in their lives. Yeah. Alongside with numerous morals, there are of course 
episodes where they talk about it's bad to lie, mm-hmm. yada, 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 yada. And you don't have to be afraid of the drain. <laughs> there is an important silver lining for Angelica, and that is mm. Susie. Angelica finds community in Susie. Which makes sense because she's the only other kid around who's Angelica's age. Which, okay, I, 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 I kind of brought this up as a leading leading topic because the fact that this show divides communities based clearly in age mm-hmm. is a greater reflection of Western culture. Well, a lot of cultures, really, that is a fairly recent development in human development. Hunter-gatherer tribes throw kids of all ages together, including teenagers, by the way. Huh. Adolescents are often engaging with kids that are like six or y- six years younger than they are or more. They often help with child-rearing, and they all go play together and do stuff together. And age is not a dividing factor, partially because they don't have a really concrete way to track age, because they don't have, like, clocks and exact calendars but Mm -hmm. the point being is that normally angelica would be a part of the baby's community naturally that is a way that humans developed for the longest time and it's only since the advent of what we have today is modern education structure that did that dividing kids by age into different grades. It was school that has created this perception that a child's community should be kids exactly their age. That is like the defining reason why that's a thing. The concept of childhood didn't exist before the industrial revolution. Yeah, Yeah, no, they were just tiny adults. There were were no kids. So this, we've increasingly segmented children into, well, we've increasingly segmented tiny humans into different communities. And you see it come out in the show naturally because that's how we think of things. And Angelica finds community in this world when she has a person her age who's at least a regular on the show who is nice and is kind of like the babies and is also tough enough to be able to stomach Angelica and confident enough in herself to be like, yeah, you you got all your nonsense going on. You can be nice and we'll hang out, but I'm not going to put up with this shit. And Angelica gets better. Angelica gets better when Susie's around. And this, I, I just wish that, we didn't have this stuff where we were so segmented based on age. Like within a year, within a year, there's something to say about generations, but within a year is insane. That's true because Angelica is three and Chucky is two. So why is Chucky part of the babies and Angelica is like older than them and like can't really hang out with them, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Why does it take, somebody exactly her age to to be allowable for her to like be with yeah Yeah. that's interesting i that's not something i knew and it makes sense uh it seems logical but yeah we even think now you know uh 
you know, fifth graders hanging out with third graders or whatever. Like, that's weird that a fifth grader would want to hang out with a third grader. What's problematic is that it has robbed cultural transmission of knowledge in childhood. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because kids, like, the good thing about communities that allow kids that encourage kids of various ages to exist in the same group or community is that older kids teach younger kids stuff. They, they teach them like local urban legends. They teach them cultural <laughs> things. They teach them skills and emotional regulation. And you don't have that unless kids outside of school form that community on their own or if kids have siblings. Yes, that's true. And that's kind of also, I'm an oldest, and I think being an oldest is very different, right? Because there's no one doing that for you, but then you turn around and do that for someone else. Well, and that's what Tommy does when Dill comes along, is that Tommy all of a sudden is starting to teach and protect Dill all this stuff. And you see sort of this prototypical good big brother Arise out okay, because I haven't watched as far as you have, so I haven't gotten to a point where Dill exists yet um, yeah. in the show. And that you can call it a strength or a weakness, but a lot of the show for Tommy becomes about Dill. Huh. See, I don't really remember that. I don't really remember as many episodes with Dill from when I was a kid. Maybe I just wasn't interested in Dill. <laughs> <laughs> well, and most of the time he just sits there and coos. Yeah, because he's like even more of a baby, so he doesn't talk. And he he rolls around in his custom little roller that Stu made for him. <laughs> but basically, it's kind of sad that culturally we see older kids who are hanging out with younger kids as uncool or as weird that older kids see it as boring and younger younger kids see older kids as these like gods relatively like a kid a sixth grader who's asked about a 21 year old is like oh my god they are the biggest deal in the world yeah or even like i remember uh one of both of our closest friends in college was a non-traditional student and he's like more than 10 years old well not quite he's a little less than 10 years older than me right? Somewhere seven or eight years older than me. Um, And I remember talking about him to uh, like older adults outside of the college environment. And they were like, well, that's weird that someone in their late 20s would want to like have a college experience and like hang out with um, people who are college age. I'm like, what? Why is that weird? He's less than a decade older than us. Like, Like, there's nothing bizarre about. And in fact, it really benefit us as traditionally college age students to have someone older like that around, like transmission of knowledge happened in that way. It is precisely because we are so used to segment by age. Mm -hmm. That is the only reason that it's weird. Literally the only reason is because of this weird, stupid cultural thing. Like, yeah, that that's is, bizarre. That is something where, like, I'm, I am just ready to buckle down on social construction and be, <laughs> this, this is nothing to do with psychology. This is all culture. Because yeah, hunter-gatherers do not do that shit. Yeah, I never knew that. Thank you for sharing that. 
but it, it is a shame. It is a shame. It, it, it's a, it, it starts to matter less in adulthood. And I think you start mm-hmm. to see it wane because adults can't come up with any logical reason why it should be that way. And individually, yeah. they break from it. But they it's an individual break. It's not a cultural break because yes. nobody, nobody cares enough to then go, huh, since it's bullshit, why should I have ever gone through it at all? Why should my kids go through it at all? Like people stop just short of action mm-hmm. or actionable ideas even. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. super interesting. Um, okay. Do you have anything else that you want to hit on for Rugrats? No, I think that I have said my fill and that we could go on forever, but we mm-hmm. must always draw a line. Yeah. I think I've hit all of the major things that I really wanted to talk about with this show. Um, in general, okay, here's something I want to ask you. Did you enjoy this show as much as an adult as you did as a child? Yes. I think that the enjoyment was different. It wasn't as much pure creative enjoyment, but at the same time, I've seen a lot of cartoons since then and Mm -hmm. read watching Rugrats has been a fun, nostalgic experience that ultimately I'm happy that I've done. And I probably will peek back in throughout my adulthood, maybe a couple episodes at a time just to see how it feels. Yeah. No, I agree. I don't think as a child, as a small child, it was my favorite show. And I don't so like obviously as an adult, like I didn't enjoy it quite as much as I did as a five year old. Um, but I still like I really enjoyed it. And I think that I will probably especially because I didn't even get to the part where like Dill gets introduced or Kimmy uh, peek back into the show. And it's been like a really fun experience, I think, to rewatch uh, this show and I would recommend like just like maybe not sitting down and like binge watching it but I'm um, just like peeking in and kind of seeing how it feels to watch as an adult yeah I think this show is definitely best experienced to non-binge yeah oh no I agree it's Rugrats is extremely hard to binge don't do it <laughs> and that's not a fault of the show it's a fault of our current TV consumption habits yes absolutely um, yeah, but, uh, next what we're going to be doing is, Hey Arnold, um, which I announced on the Twitter. I'm so uh, excited. I'm really excited too, because also I was just ever so slightly too young for Hey Arnold. So I, I wasn't was- nearly as into it the way, because like, if you'll recall, Hey Arnold was rated like Y7, whereas Rugrats was just Y. And so I didn't watch Hey Arnold nearly as much as I watched something like Rugrats and so watching it now as an adult, I am enjoying it, like, way more than I did as a kid. Oh, absolutely. I am, too. I am, too. There's so I, much jazz. There's so much culture. Oh, the show is super rich. It's and very I think, rich. I think I'm getting more out of it now than I would ever have as a kid. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I am really excited to watch. And also, Hey Arnold is only five seasons, and they're shorter. So hopefully we'll both be able to actually watch most if not all of the show by the time that we talk about it so we'll i'm sure we'll get to talk a lot about race new york culture the vietnam war oh my god heart-wrenching and uh like just 
love and emotions. Yeah. Oh. Uh, my my hot take that Arnold is a proto Finn. Yeah, yeah, you can you can definitely explain that. <laughs> I, I I'm curious to see what you have to say next time. Yeah, yeah. So that's really exciting. So we'll be doing that soon, and uh, the podcast is still going through iTunes moderation. So hopefully within a week or so, uh, it'll have completed that process, and you'll be able to just subscribe to it on iTunes. Um, In the meantime, when that happens, what? In the Sorry? meantime, this is on SoundCloud. Yeah. Um, uh, when it does get on iTunes, like if you could like subscribe to it and rate it and stuff, that would really help us out with, with people who aren't our friends and family finding the show. Um, if you have like any kinds of takes on, on Rugrats or something that you want to share with us, you can email us. It's animate ease at gmail.com with like the number eight in there instead of AT. Um, and uh, we're also on Twitter, uh, at Animates, um, spelled the way that it's spelled here on the SoundCloud. Um, yeah, anything else, Chris? Nope. I am, I am, I am rugratted out. Yeah, awesome. All right, cool. It's been really nice talking with you guys. And uh, um, yeah, we'll see you next time. For Hey Arnold! Yeah. <laughs>